You are now listening to the May 27th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Fruit of the Spirit, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's start with the Fruit of the Spirit. Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Broadcast listeners. I am Terry, host of our running program, Fruit of the Spirit. We have been learning about the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Today, we will consider the seventh characteristic, faithfulness. Faithfulness refers to unwavering and consistency. It can also be translated as honesty, sincerity, or integrity. Naturally, faithfulness comes from faith in God. When we trust God and look to Him only, we learn and meditate on His Word. That gives us joy, and when we come to live according to His Word. When we trust God and look to Him only, we learn and meditate on His Word. That gives us joy, and we come to live according to His Word. If we do not make God's Word the standard for everything, we will go astray from the truth and end up relying on ourselves and making our own thoughts the standard for all our decisions and actions. If people were to become their own standard, they would naturally gravitate toward a life without consistency and truth. Such a state may be common among people of the world, but it should not be seen in the lives of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. What God wants to see in the lives of believers is faithfulness that comes from obedience in the Lord, as well as complete devotion of mind and heart. Whatever we do, whether it is a large or small thing, we should do our best with all our hearts and trust in God. Even when no one is watching us, we put our trust in the Holy Spirit who works in us. God is faithful, so He keeps His promise. We remember the story of Jacob, who took around 70 people in his household and went to Goshen in Egypt. There, the number of his people increased to over 2 million, and they prospered. God fulfilled his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We also know the story of Jesus, who came to earth as our Savior. He came as the ultimate king through the lineage of David. This was proof that God fulfilled his promise with David, that he would keep his dynasty through his bloodline. Not only does God work for the people who were exemplary in faith, but he also works in his children who trust in him. God's faithfulness is written clearly in Deuteronomy 7.9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. It also says in 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so you can endure it. If we truly want the fruit of the Spirit to show faithfulness in our lives, we must always keep in mind three important things. First, we must show reverence to God. We will be under His care and can concentrate on being more faithful by giving Him more of our attention. Second, we must not only be thankful for the gospel of life, but also live it. 
the more we live it, the more we will experience God and become more faithful. Third, we must have certainty about the second coming of Jesus. When we have that assurance, we can live with unwavering faith, staying loyal to God until Jesus returns, no matter what the situation may be. When we revere God, live out the gospel, and have certainty about the return of Jesus, we can live a more faithful life, regardless of the circumstances. I pray that we all engrave these three things in our hearts and practice them. We will become the people who live a faithful life for God and for our neighbors. Faithfulness is a characteristic that must be evident in those who believe in God and have received the gospel, as the Bible says. I would like to close our time today by reminding us of 1 Corinthians 4.2. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful.
is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is the mystery of the Trinity. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Philippians chapter 2. This text comes in the middle of an exhortation for the church to humbly come together in love for one another, and to look out for each other's interests. Look at it with me. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. The Bible says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, talking to the church, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What a picture. God calling his church to be unified in Christ, to have the same mind and the same love, one mind. And what is that mind? That which is yours in Christ Jesus. All those who are in Christ, who believed in him, who have trusted in him as Savior and Lord of their lives, you have the mind of Christ. It's yours. And thus begins in the next verse what may be the most profound statement 
of the Christmas story in all the Bible. F.B. Meyer, a preacher of old, said the verses that follow this are unapproachable in their unexampled majesty. Verse 6, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's what we're going to do. Over the course of December, we're going to mine this cave of wonder in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And we're going to discover four truths about this baby born in a manger. And we're going to see, and I hope feel in a fresh way, not just majesty and wonder and awe, but the massive implications of who Jesus is amidst whatever is going on in your life, in your family, in your work, and in the world around us right now. And all it's going to take today for this to happen is one verse, verse 6. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And we'll go ahead and read verse 7 just to make the connection. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So this baby born in a manger 2,000 years ago was in the form of God. What does that mean? Well, the word translated right before this was... It's huparko. The reason I share that, so just to kind of put a connection to get the essence of what the Bible's saying here. Hupo, which means under, and arche, which means beginning. So we would get words like archaic from that. So basically mean means that Jesus has existed from the beginning in the form of God. And the Bible clarifies what that means when it says that Jesus from the beginning was equal with God. Jesus has existed from the beginning in the form of God and equal with God. And this is not the only time the Bible talks this way about Jesus. Just a few other examples you might write down. We won't have time to turn to them all, so I'll put them up here on the screen. In John's account of Jesus' life, he doesn't tell us any of the details surrounding Jesus' birth in terms of Joseph and Mary and manger. Instead, this is how he starts by writing John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word here is how John refers to Jesus as the revelation of God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So in the beginning, before anything was made, Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Which is why later in John, right before Jesus goes to the cross, he prays in John 17, I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. In a similar way, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, describes Jesus this way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. The image of the invisible God, the one who created all things and in whom all things hold together. In another passage, Hebrews 1 tells us long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, talking about Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him also, he created the world. He is, talking about Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you hear what the Bible is clearly teaching in all of these places? Going back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Jesus is God. He exists and has always existed in the form of God. He is equal with God. This baby born in a manger is God here with us in the flesh. Just one more place. Go back to John chapter 1, verse 14, where John says, and the word, remember that's talking about Jesus, the word who is with God and is God, came flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So how are we to understand this? Because even here, we're seeing God described as both the Father and the Son. Which leads us to what the Bible teaches us about the mystery of the Trinity. Now, I use that word mystery intentionally. The Trinity, the truth that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a mystery. It's not a contradiction, which would be a condition in which at least two things are truly contrary to each other. It's not a paradox where you have two things that you don't think go together, but as soon as you hear it, but maybe they do, like jumbo shrimp. Microsoft works. Or, anyway, I'm, sorry, sorry. No offense. So it's not a contradiction, not a paradox, but a mystery. A truth that our minds cannot comprehend, 
but we accept by faith. One theologian named J. Rodman Williams said, because all Christian doctrines relate to God, who is ultimately beyond our comprehension, there will inevitably be some element of mystery or transcendence that cannot be reduced to human understanding. Or John Calvin put it this way, a man with all his shrewdness is as stupid about understanding by himself the mysteries of God as a donkey is incapable of understanding musical harmony. And a mystery is a hard thing for us to swallow in our pride. A.W. Tozer said, we are all inclined to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get God, Tozer said, where we can use him. We want a God we can in some measure control. But God is greater than any of us could ever comprehend or certainly control. And just because we can't comprehend God completely doesn't mean we can't know God truly. Because God has made himself known to us in this way. If you've ever wondered how to summarize what God teaches us about himself, specifically his Trinitarian nature, let me give you three truths to write down that help us understand what Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 is telling us about Jesus, this baby born in the manger, being in the form of God and equal with God. Here's truth number one. There is one God. This is the most basic truth in all the Bible, taught from the very first verse in the Bible, Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God. The Bible makes very clear from the start, there is one God who created the heavens and the earth. The first words in the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, are, I am the Lord your God, one God, who brought you out, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. One of the most famous passages in the Old Testament, known as the Shema in Hebrew, that's the word for here in Hebrew. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel. This is what I want you to hear, God saying, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So there is one God. That's truth number one. Truth number two is that God is three persons. One God, three persons. In the Bible, this one God reveals himself to us using plural pronouns. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's God speaking. Genesis chapter 11, verse 6 and 7. The Tower of Babel. <laughs> the Lord said, behold, they're one people. They all have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come let us go down. And there confused their language. Or think Isaiah's call in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And all throughout the Bible, we see 
three distinct persons at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. We see when Jesus, God the Son, was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Who's saying that? There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in two verses. This is what we say to each other at the end of every uh, single Sunday we're together. We leave, go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Or take a passage like 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which we studied a while back. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, the Son, and for sprinkling with his blood. The Bible teaches over and over again that the one God overall is three persons. And that truth number three, each person is fully God. Each person is not one-third God. They're not a part of God. They're each fully God. God the Father is fully God. Take a passage like Matthew 6 on worry, a good word for anyone who is tempted to be anxious about anything in your life or health or family or work or the world around us right now. Jesus says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat, will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God... So clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So God the Father is fully God. And the Holy Spirit is fully God. In Acts chapter 5, when Ananias lied about his offering, Peter said to him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to who? To God. When you lie to the Holy Spirit, you are lying to God. Because the Holy Spirit is fully God. And what we're seeing in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, is that Jesus the Son is fully God, not part of God, but in the form of God, equal with God. It's just one other example among many in the Bible. Titus chapter 2 verse 13 describes how we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior who is who? Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. So there is one God Revealed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are all fully God. 
And this is a mystery. It's not a contradiction. The Bible is not saying, and we are not saying, that God is one and not one in the same way. The Bible is saying, and we are saying, that God is three in one. Which means, so now we come back to this shockingly simple verse in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, this baby born in a manger that we celebrate at Christmas has existed forever in the form of God. That's very different from you or me or every other person ever born in the world. You did not exist. I did not exist. No one in the world among the now 8 billion people today existed in the beginning, in eternity past. But Jesus did as God. I just want you to think about what this means. Even for your life, my life right now. This means so many things. I'll just list four of them here. First, the one who came to the world 2,000 years ago is worthy of all of your worship today. So yes, it is right to sing and to sing loudly, to lift up your hands and your voice with shouts of praise to Jesus. He is the eternally existent Son of God by whom you have been created, in whom you are being held together right now. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. So now the details of the story start to make sense why wise men from the nations would come to the house of a baby and bow down and worship with exceedingly great joy and offer extravagant gifts. Why? Because Jesus is God. And he is worthy of the worship of every man, woman, and child from every nation of the earth. Of course, a multitude of angels in the heavenly host would sing glory to God in the highest because a baby who has, has been born, who is Christ the what? The Lord God. Oh, man, woman, child in this gathering, in this moment. Do not demean Jesus with monotonous religious motion and superficial religious traditions this Christmas. Jesus is not worthy of your passing thoughts or patronizing activities. He is God, and he is worthy of your highest adoration and supreme worship. That's number one. Number two gets better. The reason he came to the world is because of his love for you. And I just want you to feel this right where you are sitting right now. Being in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature, form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So we're starting to run out of time. I'm going to put these last two close together. So third implication for your life. Realize what we're seeing here. This means that the one who came to the world 2,000 years ago 
is with you right now. Remember, that's what his name means, Emmanuel, God with us. And you think about what happened after Jesus died, rose from the grave. Before Jesus, God with us, ascended into heaven, what did he say? We say it to each other every week. Or where is the last words in the book of Matthew? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That cannot be if Jesus was not God. He was just a man. He was physically leaving, ascending into heaven. But because Jesus is God, he said, when I leave here physically, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to live in you, and I, I will be with you always. Christian amidst whatever you are walking through in your life right now, know this, you are not alone. You're not alone. And those moments where it feels like you're alone, you are not alone. Jesus is with you. And think about what that means. So this is fourth implication. Think about this. For all who believe in Jesus, the one who is with you is the one who rules the world. Not just anybody is with you. The one who's with you is the author and sustainer of all creation and the ruler with all authority in heaven and on earth. That's who's with you. I obviously don't know all that you're walking through right now. But I do want to remind you today of this word coming to you straight from God amidst whatever you're going through. Amidst dark nights in your soul, in those difficult days of your family, in that doctor's appointment that you dread, when hopes are failing and tears are falling and doubts are rising and questions are coming, when you're battling with chronic pain or cancer, when you're living with special needs in you or around you, when you're struggling through anxiety or depression, or even fighting with sin and temptation, whatever you are facing and whatever this fallen world is bringing your way, know this, the one who calms the wind and the waves The one who causes diseases and demons to run. The one who calls the dead to life. Jesus, the ruler of the world, he is with you. And he is for you. And if he is with you, and if he is for you, then nothing in this world can stand against you ever, always to the end of the age, he will never leave you alone. And he, with all he is and all he has, will give you everything you need to press on and to persevere until the day when he brings you to be with him. All glory be to Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
Will you bow your heads with me? All across this room. Other locations. Hi. I want to ask just every single person with the sound of my voice. Do you believe in this, Jesus? Have you put the, your trust in your life now and forever in him? If the answer to that question is not a resounding yes, I encourage you, hear God's spirit speaking to you right now. And just say in response in your heart right now in this moment, just say, God, I believe. I believe you've come to save me from my sin, to restore me to relationship with you. So today I put my trust in Jesus, God in the flesh. And what he did on the cross to forgive me of all my sin. How he rose from the dead so that I could have new and eternal life, everlasting life with you. And you pray that to God. You express that in your heart to God. The Bible says he does that. He forgives you of your sin. He restores you to relationship with him. And when you do, and for all who have, can we just pray Jesus, there is no one like you. We bow our heads and our hearts in wonder and awe at who you are. And we say, especially over the next few weeks, we want to know you more. We want to see you more clearly, know you more truly and worship you more appropriately. Keep us, we pray, guard us from missing the point. As we enjoy all kinds of activities and different things that come with this season, God, we pray that at the center of it all would be deepening understanding of Jesus and affection for Jesus. We want to love you, God, with all our heart and soul and mind. We want to trust you, God, amidst all the things that are going on in our lives. I pray that these truths would bring comfort and strength and peace and joy and hope, especially for those who are walking through difficult days. Only you, Jesus, only you can do this. Praise you for your word, God. We love it. We love what one verse can do to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. And all God's people said, amen.
The voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602 866-8999.
The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures. There are portions within Paul's writing that Peter reveals that are difficult to understand. He didn't say you can't understand it. He said they are difficult. Some things are very clear. The Spirit of God illumines those things and helps us understand. Some things are difficult. They take study. It takes work and dependence on the Lord Jesus to understand the truth of God. And within the Apostle Paul, there are some things that he wrote that Peter says are hard to understand. I can think of passages that are hard to understand. I can think of how people have distorted those, by the way. Passages that are hard to understand. Peter isn't saying you can't understand. He's saying there are some that are hard to understand. And those are some of those that they go after, as they do with the rest of the Scriptures. You see, when we come to the Word of God, brothers and sisters, we must come in complete humility. Not in prideful arrogance, not feeling sorry for yourself you can't understand, but trusting the Lord. Though they are difficult, we need to come within that with humility before the Lord as the psalmist prayed, teach me thy statutes. You know, I come to my study each week not assuming that I understand it or know it, saying, Lord God, I don't know what this means. Help me understand. Help me share exactly what you meant. I recognize apart from his interjection and intervention into my study, I will not understand truly what it is. His spirit needs to illumine the truth of God, and I need to have a right heart as I study and share. 2 Timothy 2.15, Timothy was told to study to show himself approved, handling accurately the word of truth. There's study involved. There's work, but not mechanical work. You know, it's interesting, sometimes the how to study class we have, some people take it mechanically, that's not it. There's a process to do, but it's in the context over and over, as I shared, of complete dependence. Lord God, I can't understand. You need to open my heart and my mind. And so he says, basically, there are difficult passages that the bad guys, as we see here, and we'll look at it in a minute, distort, distort as they do the rest of the scriptures. And I'll give you an example of some difficult passages. First Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 14. That's a difficult passage on tongues and, and those things. It is difficult. You can't just read through that casually and get an understanding right away. It takes diligent study. It may take even a pastor teacher to equip you to understand so that you would not be thrown back and forth. Now we can understand the word on our own, but God has also given us those to equip us. It's a difficult passage. And within the church, I'm not talking about saying people that fall into these things are not believers. I'm saying there are those who would twist it and distort it and people would fall into wrong doctrine or things. We see that in the area of tongues. We see that in the area of passages that are turned to cause people who are spiritually self-reliant and lazy to be taken captive. If you are spiritually self-reliant and you are lazy in the word, you will be taken captive. You're going to be a target for those who would distort the word of God and you might fall from your own steadfastness. 
Notice what he says here. He says, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of things in which some things are hard to understand. Then notice what he says, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. This is a warning. The difficult passage, they also distort the rest of the word too. But this is a warning. Now this term distort is a very vivid word. If you were a Greek speaker and you heard this word, you go, oh, it's a very vivid word. It speaks of twisting or wrenching a limb on an instrument made for torture called the rack. Distorting the word. They're twisting it. They're twisting it to its own destruction. The point is the twisting is causing damage. They're distorting. You could translate this word torture. But figuratively speaking, it is speaking of twisting or distorting the word. And there is this element of destruction behind it. The person who is involved is going to be affected by it. They distort, the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures. Now, we've seen already in chapter 2 and throughout 3 that there will be false teachers. Peter has made that clear. Look back in chapter 2, verse 1. There are going to be bad guys in the church. Second Peter 2, 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers, pseudo-teachers among you. That's in the church. Who will what? Secretly. It's not outright, even though he gave an outright example in chapter 3, but they'll secretly do it even to the point of denying. They're very sly. Secretly introduced destructive heresies and even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow. There's a lot of believers that are shipwrecked. Many will follow their sexuality. It doesn't mean they're not saved, but a lot of believers who've been shipwrecked by bad teaching. And he says here, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. But their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And then look down after we see they secretly induce destructive heresies with their sensual teaching and exploit with false words. Look at verse 17, chapter 2. These are springs without water, Mists driven by a storm for whom black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, that's emptiness, they entice by fleshly desires. That's how they go at you, by the way. We saw that in chapter 2. By sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in air. Promising them freedom. They promise you freedom in the context of Jesus. While they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. These guys appear to be giving you a meal in the Word, but they don't give you anything. They give you arrogant, empty words, and they entice your flesh. They promise you freedom, but that freedom leads you to enslavement. Temporal enslavement, by the way, if you're a believer. Temporal. And then in chapter 3, we saw that they would be mockers. They would mock God's promises. They would follow after their own lusts. These wicked men and women appear to be teaching God's word, but ultimately give a pass, as we see, for licentiousness or for sensuality, for people to follow their own desires, but think they're following Jesus. You can follow your own desires 
but think you're following Jesus. And how do they do it? They twist or torture the Scripture. They twist the Word of God. They use the Word. That's the danger. They're not just saying they use the Word of God, by the way, and they twist it. They twist it. Bad guys distort the Word of God. And this distortion can go even to the extreme of denying His promises, right out, where is the promise of His coming? Or denying the Lord Jesus, as we saw, even denying the Master who bought them. We see this throughout the church these days. You can read it in the books, The Purpose-Driven Life, Purpose-Driven Church. If you were to read those books and read your Bible rightly, you would see that this man has twisted and distorted the Scriptures to go after your desires. This is false teaching, folks. And there are believers, true believers, who get their faith shipwrecked. And when I talk about this, I'm talking about the people who are doing it. There are real believers underneath, many who get caught up and get messed up by the distortion of the Word of God. If you read that and don't read it, but if you did, you would see these misquoting Scripture. He's twisting Scripture. It's being twisted. It's being distorted. There's all sorts of things. We see some charismatic churches promoting healing and experience, twisting the Word of God. While speaking of the sufficiency of the Word, they actually twist. And there are many spiritual casualties. There are believers in there, and there are many spiritual casualties focused ultimately on experience and healing. God can heal, but these bad guys get people focused on those things rather than on Christ. It's very subtle. We talked about emotion. What about reason? We see subtle attacks on the gospel through perversions of theology. We see reformed teachers who misapply the word of God to leave out the promises of God. They don't believe in the promise of Israel being saved. That's a pretty big promise to leave out, by the way. They twist the word concerning regeneration. There's a lot of believers that are listening to things that are slightly drawing them away, whether it's emotion or reason. So throughout here, we see that there's going to be bad guys. Back in our passage, chapter 3, verse 15, just also as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, or given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of things in which some things are hard to understand. By the way, those are hard, some passages hard that they twist, by the way. Hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, or twist, or torture, as they do the rest of the scriptures. Now you might be saying, I'm kind of confused. I saw over in chapter 2, these guys seem to be using the word. They seem to know of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but here it calls them the untaught and unstable. What does that mean? Is it referring to a different group of people here? Well, folks, I believe in the context of Second Peter, there's no way we can see it as anyone else than who he's been speaking about the entire time. So why does he call them untaught and unstable? It appears they're pretty slick. It appears they know the Word of God. They're actually twisting the Scriptures, right? Well, first of all, I believe he's stating reality concerning these people so that we would see in contrast to what they make themselves out to be. They make themselves out to be stable and taught in the Word, but they're not. The term untaught actually comes from the term learner or disciple. It's negated. It could mean not being one, not being a learner, not being a Montano, not being one who is taught. 
The term unstable speaks of double-minded. We saw that concerning believers in chapter 3. These are the ones they go after, tossed back and forth, but they in themselves are unstable, untaught and unstable. You see, I think ultimately Peter's point is to try to make the point that they really don't exhibit the characteristics they portray. They are untaught and unstable. They are not learned followers, disciples of Jesus, who are stable in their walk. They are not. They are untaught and unstable, and they distort the Scriptures. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we see Paul speaks of those who have a form of godliness, yet have denied its power, which we're commanded to avoid. He says they are always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They never come to it. 2 Timothy 3, 7. So then these bad guys seem to know the truth and have internally rejected it. They're pretty sly, how they mold the words. They actually appear to be those who are very well taught, very stable. They appear to be fountains bringing forth tremendous meals and refreshment in Scripture, but yet it's empty. Although they appear to be learned, they've never come to the knowledge of the truth, and they've ultimately not. And guess what? They will be destroyed. Look in the end of verse 16. Actually, I'll read 16 again. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of things in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort or twist, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. They take the hard parts, twist those, but they also do the rest. And notice what he says, to their own destruction. These are not believers. Peter said they're not believers. Now, believers are being led astray, as we're going to see, and we're going to be told to watch out and be on guard because we could be led astray. It's in the church, but these guys are not believers. They are those who are going to be eternally destroyed. It is an extremely serious, serious thing to twist the Word of God and to bring a different gospel or to be a false teacher. We see the horrible realities of what God has said will happen to those who do such. Look back in chapter 2. Back to chapter 2, verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you. They'll do business with you. They're bad business, by the way. Remember we saw that? They'll exploit you with false words or molded words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. They're on their way to judgment. God doesn't miss it. Just like he didn't miss the angels and those in Sodom and Gomorrah. He didn't miss it. He didn't miss them. Look down in verse 9 of chapter 2. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring self-willed. What about verse 12? But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Don't worry about it. Don't you go out and try to fight it. You just stay away from it. God's going to take care of it. Don't be a false teacher hunter. Stay away from it. We're to stay away and be on guard. God's going to take care of them. Look at verse 17. These are springs without water, mist driven by a storm, for whom black darkness has been reserved. Peter has thoroughly warned us concerning false teachers who will distort the word ultimately to their own destruction. We've been warned. They will appear to be following Jesus. They will arise among you. And ultimately, in some way or another, they will give license 
to sin in a very subtle way in which you think you're following Jesus. They've turned the grace of God into licentiousness. And therefore, notice our passage says we are to be on guard. We are commanded at this point because we know something beforehand. Verse 17, back in chapter 3. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. This is to believers. This is to beloved Peter's not just saying, it's the last time I'm going to see you, I love you so much, and I will miss you for a long time, and we'll see each other in heaven. He's not saying that. He's saying what's most important. He's a faithful shepherd. He says, you therefore, knowing this beforehand. Knowing what? That there will be those who distort the Word of God, especially the passages that are difficult, as they do the rest of the Scriptures. There's going to be those just like he has described. Knowing this beforehand... Beloved, says you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand. And then we have a command. Be on your guard. This is God commanding us, and if we don't obey God, we'll always suffer. You know, if you disobey God, you will suffer. We see examples of that throughout Scripture where Israel didn't obey God and take out all the inhabitants of the land, and they were thorns in their side, right? We see example of Solomon not obeying God in terms of his wives and horses, and we see what happened. The kingdom was divided, right? Horrible consequences. Be on your guard. It speaks of the activity of a watchman. It says, and it's in a continual sense, be continually, habitually guarding or on your guard. It's the beloved. It's believers. It's to believers. Those who are loved by Christ and love one another. Beloved. He has warned us that which is going to come into the church, and since we know it beforehand, continually, habitually be guarding. Now, this is to the whole body of Christ here in Second Peter, by the way. The Apostle Paul in Acts actually spoke to the elders concerning this. Turn to Acts chapter 20. Now, being on your guard doesn't mean you're a finger pointer. Being on your guard means you're watching out, you're addressing the Word of God, you're examining to see if it is so, you're testing those things, you're understanding the Word, right? You recognize there will be those who twist it, so you're aware and you're on your guard. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul shares his last words to the Ephesian elders there in Miletus. He says, Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise. That's pretty scary. People will arise, right? Among your own selves. And know what he says here? Speaking twisted things, perverted things. They're twisting the word of God, right? To draw away disciples after them. They want you to follow them, right? Therefore, be on your alert, remembering night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Now, Paul was warning the elders in that passage, but we have been warned here and know beforehand, knowing this beforehand. There's going to be those who twist the word of God, lessen the reality of sin. They're going to turn God's grace subtly into a license to sin or be fleshly, twisting God's word to cause you to follow after your desires rather than God's will, to give you a pass, to think you're following Jesus. Not tell you right now, 
What I've seen where people have bought into twisted doctrine and things, they actually think they're following Jesus. They actually think they're doing the right thing. They have been deceived. Back in our passage, verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. And here's the warning. Lest, being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. Here's the warning. Being carried away, it's an impassive voice. It speaks of being taken along. Think of like a raft that goes into the river. It's carried away by the current. Being carried away by the error of unprincipled, the term unprincipled is that same cognate of licentious or lawless, of licentious or lawless men. The error of these people. Be on your guard lest you get carried away. The first step is being carried away by these things. You see it happen emotionally or intellectually where God's word is subtly twisted, but it feeds your flesh and it draws you away. It carries you away. Be on guard. That doesn't happen. Guard over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And there's a consequence if you do get carried away. He says here, you fall from your own steadfastness. The term fall here is an interesting word. It can certainly speak of falling away and falling out of something. But it also was used as a nautical term. We see it in the book of Acts, which speaks of a ship that drifts off course, driven into the rocks and driven aground. Be in your guard, lest your walk with Jesus is drawn away and driven into the rocks. And it's destroyed, basically. No, you'll still be saved if you're truly saved. But your walk in that moment will be shipwrecked. And how it's done is through bad guys who twist the word of God to cater to your desires. All in the context of following, quote unquote, Jesus. That you would fall from your own steadfastness. Interesting, your own steadfastness. You see, in Jesus Christ, we are all individually firm in a position of stability. When we trust in Jesus Christ, we are stable. When we walk with Jesus Christ, we are stable because of Christ. Steals 
now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.